very much. Uh, my name is Brad Benningfield. I'm chair of the nonprofit practice at Himalayan Barnes, and I am co-chair of the public policy committee of the BBA's tax exempt steering committee. I'm Sharon Lincoln. I'm a partner at Kasner and Edwards, and I'm also on the BBA's exempt organizations committee steering, exempt organizations section steering committee. And I'm Melissa McMorrow. I'm a partner at Nutter McLennan and Fish also a member of the steering committee of the exempt org section at the Boston Bar Association, as well as the co-chair of the BBA's working group on modernizing chapter 180, the statute for nonprofit organizations in Massachusetts. I think we will kick it off. Everyone should be able to see our slides on the screen. Um, and we have a lot of material to cover. Um, we're going to go through the highlights and hope that you will be able to um, uh, use the slides as a reference point in the future. Um, so here we go. I'm just working on, there we go. And we have a little bit of, um, of uh, uh, mental breaks built in, thanks to Sharon. Um, so please enjoy the scenery. This is from the White Mountains last summer. Um, it's supposed to look like an elephant. Okay. Um, CARES Act, relief for charities. Um, we are covering, um, all uh, most of what we can on the on the CARES Act and the first thing we'd like to start out with um, particular to nonprofits um, is the relief provided for nonprofits who self-insure their unemployment costs um, so you can see that um, some 501c3 organizations have the option of um, paying unemployment insurance tax themselves uh, paying into the unemployment tax system or self-insuring their unemployment liabilities. Um, if the charity self-insures, um, in the normal course, it must repay the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund for the amount of the benefits actually claimed by the uh, charity's laid-off employee. The CARES Act, um, uh, in, in a bit of good news, um, is re uh, allowing charities to be reimbursed for half of the amount of the employment, unemployment benefits that they provide to laid off employees. Uh, so that was some welcome relief for charities who um, self-insured. Um, and then for the unemployment insurance benefits themselves, um, this has gotten a lot of interest, um, but you'll see that um, the CARES Act allocates $250 billion for unemployment benefits. Um, that notably includes self-employed or so to speak gig economy workers, part-time people seeking part-time employment, um, people with insufficient work history. So significant expansion of the normal um, criteria that would allow someone to be eligible for unemployment. Um, there is an extension of the normal amount of weeks that someone is eligible to receive unemployment benefits. And as well, there is um, very importantly, a $600 additional weekly benefit payable until July 31st. So this um, is some significant uh, additional assistance to, um, to those who um, are seeking unemployment benefits. Prior to the CARES Act, there were, there were two pieces of federal legislation that were passed. The CARES Act has gotten a ton of press and a t uh, generated a ton of interest, um, but the legislation immediately um, prior to that was the family, um, was um, legislation uh, specifically targeted um, to people who were experiencing um, the inability to work due to COVID-19 related sicknesses or issues. Um, so there was a specific expansion for paid sick leave 
um, which you can see right there. And the, the expansion is limited to, um, is targeted for employers with fewer than 500 employees. Um, I'm not going to read through all the reasons, but you can see the theme here that it's targeted for people who are experiencing work disruption, sickness, um, due to um, something to related to COVID-19. And then you can also see that there are um, limitations on the amount an employer is allowed to, uh, is required to pay. There is a corollary expansion of the FMLA um, legislation, again, COVID related, um, and there are some limitations on, on the amount that, um, uh, the amount of leave uh, and as well as the uh, amount paid per day. One thing I want to note is for both the sick leave and the paid FMLA, um, employers are able to take advantage of a refundable tax credit um, for these expenses that are incurred. And the one thing I wanna highlight on this is that this tax credit is in fact refundable. So generally speaking, if you, um, if you when you calculate your tax credit, you um, see that you're, you're owed a credit that exceeds the amount of payroll tax that you've paid for this purposes, um, you can apply to receive basically a refund or um, uh, funds from the, from the IRS for this purpose. Sharon? I will jump in. So the CARES Act also provides um, some tangible relief for individuals. Um, retirement plans may be accessed to a greater degree under the CARES Act. Um, and this specifically is for individuals um, directly impacted by COVID-19, specifically those diagnosed or those suffering financial consequences as a result of it. Um, the, the hook here is that these withdrawals from the retirement plan must be used for covering COVID-19 expenses, and they also have to be repaid within three years. So if we go to the next slide, there's just a quick bullet point summary of the, um, of the loans. I don't know if I'm supposed to, uh, Melissa is kindly doing it. Perfect. Um, so the loans have to be made within 180 days of the enactment of the CARES Act. Um, the loan limit, usually it's 50,000. Now you can um, withdraw up to $100,000 and up to 100% of the balance with that $100,000 cap. Um, and uh, due date extended in terms of when the loan might be due. There's also um, minimum distribution relief regarding certain defined contribution plans and uh, IRAs. So heading on to the next slide, um, there's also tax-free student loan relief. Um, employers that are able to do so can pay student debt um, against the 50 to 50 limit. Um, and that, uh, that could um, really help employees who uh, are suffering a lower income because the employer isn't able to pay them as much or maybe their partner uh, has lost their job and so there's less um, money coming into the home. Um, so this could be a real morale boost to uh, employees and this is tax-free to the employee. Um, so if you assume, like I put there, a $500 a month student debt payment, this is, um, you know, nearly a year's worth of, of student debt relief. Um, also, not on this slide, there's also um, student loan repayments have been deferred uh, on federal loans until the end of September of this year. So that's another element of student loan relief. Um, there's also existing relief for individuals. Um, there's a provision in the code under section 139, qualified disaster payments. And these um, generally kick in when there's been some sort of natural disaster or a flood or a tornado. Um, and, and these qualified disaster relief payments can be paid tax-free to individuals who have suffered some sort of loss as a result of the natural disaster. 
Um, here we have a, 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 a sort of a nationwide state of emergency that isn't a natural disaster like a hurricane, but it's affecting thousands and thousands, I would say millions of us. So um, this is one way that individuals may receive additional funding from their employer that is uh, tax-free, um, that may be used uh, for um, expenses that basically are related to COVID-19. Um, if we go to the next slide. So effectively, for example, if an employee has their children at home and has to pay for, say, a, a tutor or extra childcare for them, um, and these are additional expenses that are being incurred, uh, the employer could provide the employee with um, some sort of compensation that's not salary compensation, just funding for the employee to be able to cover these expenses. The um, payments are supposed to be reasonably expected to be commensurate with the amount of unreimbursed, reasonable and necessary expenses that are incurred as a result of COVID-19. Um, and on the next slide, the, um, they, the thing is, these are not intended to be some sort of substitute for lost wages. So for example, if an employee, if their partner loses their job um, and it's difficult to pay the rent or the mortgage, just kind of providing some sort of bonus to the employee is not a 139 payment, you know, to enable the employee to make their rent or their mortgage because the rent and the mortgage payment isn't something that's incurred as a result of COVID-19. Although charitable employers may find their way to making some sort of charitable gift if the employee is in distress. Um, so in terms of employer considerations, it's a very good idea to have a written policy that spells out the terms of uh, payment and the permitted uses and an attestation from the employee that they're not getting reimbursed for these expenses elsewhere and that they won't be used for non-essential luxury or decorative items and services. And that language is taken straight from the statute. Hey, thank you, Sharon. Now, in addition to uh, some tax relief for receipt of funds related to COVID-19, as Sharon was talking about, the CARES Act also provides some incentives for people to make contributions to nonprofits uh, related to COVID-19. Um, <clears throat> in particular, the nonprofit sector has been for many years pushing for a universal charitable deduction and above the line deduction that could be enjoyed by non-itemizers as well as itemizers, particularly important now uh, after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a couple of years ago, which increased the standard deduction and took a lot of people out of the itemizer column. Um, now, at least for this year and at the moment only for 2020, um, <clears throat> taxpayers can receive a, an above the line deduction, those who are not itemizing, of up to $300 um, there was, at least in some circles, some uncertainty from the language of the statute, whether this was per person or per return. I think the consensus seems to be settling that the intent here was per person so that a married couple can deduct up to $600 on a return. But I think we have to, hopefully we'll get guidance to clarify that soon. Um, this applies only for cash gifts to public charities, not for gifts in kind, uh, not for gifts to private foundations, and importantly, not for gifts to donor advised funds or supporting organizations, DAFs and supporting orgs uh, have been on the IRS and not, Congress's naughty list for many years and we find them exempted from a lot of these kinds of things. So it's no surprise to see them here, but important to remember that if you're giving to a donor advised fund, um, you're not gonna be able to take advantage of these tax incentives. Just as a brief note, it's also worth noting that not all funds that we think of as donor advised funds necessarily are. There are certain kinds of funds that are exempted from the definition in the tax code. Uh, in particular, certain qualifying scholarship funds and certain employer-sponsored disaster relief funds. But for the most part, um, uh, these gifts are intended to be to operating charities to make immediate impact, not to DAS, um, uh, to, to make what at least Congress believes is an indirect impact. 
Uh, for those who are itemizing their deductions, uh, Congress has also included an incentive to uh, give more in the current year in 2020. Um, and Congress does this periodically. The, the idea of increasing the AGI limits, uh, which are the, the percentage of your annual income that you can deduct uh, in a given year, um, the idea of increasing that to 100% is, is not at all new. Congress frequently does this as special legislation for particular disasters. Um, uh, there, just a couple years ago, there was one for the California wildlife disaster. There was an ability to, to make larger um, uh, deductions in a given year. Uh, here, they formalized it and broadened it a little bit. Um, uh, and the way it works basically is that uh, as of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a couple of years ago, um, the old 50% for cash gifts to public charities limit of AGI was increased to 60% because of the complicated way in which that new 60% limit interacts with the others. If you're making a mix of cash gifts and non-cash gifts, you become effectively limited to 50% under the old rules. Um, and those rules are still in existence. But in addition to whatever contributions you might have been able to deduct under the existing um, Post-Tax Cuts and Jobs Act rules, you're able to elect to deduct up to uh, an incremental uh, amount that adds up to 100% of your AGI for gifts to public charities. Um, uh, effectively, this allows you to deduct the entirety of your income uh, in 2020, um, and you any excess amounts are rolled uh, over for up to five additional years. Uh, and you can um, effectively stack uh, these cash gifts to public charities um, for which you're making this special election on top of gifts that you were otherwise making. So here's an example of that in slide 16. Um, where uh, you can make gifts that you would have been able to make in the ordinary course. Uh, uh, 20, imagine your AGI is 100,000. You can gift appreciated securities to a private foundation that gets you up to 20%. And it's more appreciated securities to a public charity that gets you up to an aggregate of 30%. Uh, $20,000 of cash to a donor advised fund uh, that gets you up to 50%. Now the gas to the donor advised fund would not count for the up to 100% because those are, are um, uh, carved out. But you can make those deductions under the old rules and then tack on an additional 50% of your AGI, stack that on top. Uh, that additional 50% has to be only cash gifts to public charities that are not donor advised funds or supporting organizations. Uh, moving on to slide 17. Um, uh, those AGI limits were for individuals. Uh, corporations are limited to up to 10% of their taxable income as a charitable deduction for contributions to charity. Um, that often gets increased to in disaster scenarios. In this case, under the CARES Act, uh, they've allowed an increase of up to 25% of taxable income. Again, for cash gifts to public charities, not donor advised funds or supporting organizations, Again, it's worth noting, and this can be particularly important in the context of corporate donations, that certain qualifying corporate sponsored disaster relief donor advised funds are not donor advised funds um, under the tax code because of an IRS notice uh, from 2006. And so there might be some ability for corporations to make contributions to those and have them count. Um, but uh, it's also worth noting uh, that for nonprofits, um, nonprofits may have taxable income as unrelated business taxable income, and nonprofits are allowed to take a charitable deduction against that UBTI, but that charitable deduction is separately limited under the UBTI rules to 10% of, of taxable income, and at least the way I read uh, the CARES Act, it does not supersede that limitation, so I think nonprofits are still stuck with that limitation, but um, other corporations are able to deduct more of their taxable income by making uh, gifts to charities right now. Uh, in addition, uh, there are deductibility limits for contributions of food inventory, and those are increased for 2020. And one last thing to note, these are for gifts for the corporate ones. These are for gifts in 2020 without respect to what your fiscal or calendar year may be. So there might be some opportunity to take advantage of this with respect to a couple of different fiscal years if you're not a calendar year filer. Uh, let's talk very briefly about net operating losses. These are important for nonprofits, again, that 
um, uh, pay unrelated business or that, that incur unrelated business taxable income. Um, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a couple of years ago, one of the ways that they paid for the lower 21% uh, corporate tax uh, is by increasing um, the uh, uh, tax on those who had been relying on net operating losses, including nonprofits. And there are a couple of different ways that they did that. One was to, um, uh, to, to disallow the ability to use past losses to offset 100% of your current losses. Uh, now under the, the tax code since uh, 2018, um, uh, corporations, including nonprofits with UBTI, can only deduct up to 80% of the UBTI in a given year using past losses. You can keep rolling those losses forward, but you've got to pay some UBTI as you go. Um, together with the, um, uh, the UBTI siloing rules, which basically say that uh, prior to 2018, you could use losses in one activity to offset gains in another. After 2018, you cannot. So if you have a loss-generating activity and a gain-generating activity, the gain-generating activity is going to um, pay UBTI without being able to use those other losses, except for some old grandfathered losses. Uh, the loss-generating activity, if it becomes gain-generating, is still going to start paying UBTI right away because they're limited to this 80%. So that was all to, to try to um, uh, make uh, nonprofits pay more UBTI, make them pay it a little bit sooner than they might otherwise have had. Under the CARES Act, however, they've taken away that change, at least for um, uh, years through the, the current year. Um, so that um, there's a little bit of relief for those who otherwise might have had that acceleration of, of, of taxable income uh, because of UBTI. The other change that they've made on slide 19 is to um, uh, uh, liberate the rules with respect to carrying back net operating losses. Prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, uh, corporations and nonprofits um, in corporate form were able to carry back then operating losses to prior years. Uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act took that away. Um, uh, the, under the CARES Act, that has uh, now been reinstated and it's been reinstated retroactively. So a tax exempt organization now can carry back then operating losses for any years before um, January 2021 and after 2017. So for calendar year filers, that would be 2018, 2019, 2020 losses. Um, if you have losses in those years, um, you can carry those back for up to five prior years. Um, and uh, if you have unused losses now and you paid UBTI in any of those past years, this might be an opportunity to go back to match those up and to uh, get a refund of taxes paid uh, more or less immediately so that you could, um, at least in theory, more or less immediately, the mechanics of this are, are a little tricky in actually getting the money, um, but so that you can get some benefit now um, uh, and, and some relief, at least for, for this year and, and for recent years. Um, it's worth remembering that if you have losses that are carried back to um, 2018 or 2019, those UBTI siloing rules still apply to those years. And so you may be limited in how you can use those carryback losses. If you're able to carry back losses further than that, however, there might be some opportunity to offset current losses with activities in, in what would have been other silos because the UBTI siloing rules don't apply to years that, uh, uh, to other than years that began after January 1st, of 2018. So the bottom line in here is it's worth talking to your accountants uh, to see, or ask, having your clients talk to their accountants to see whether there's some benefit to taking current losses or anticipated losses over the, the coming year and um, amending past returns and offsetting uh, gains and getting some refund of UBTI. So this is Sharon again. Thank you, Brad. Um, so I'm going to talk about the Paycheck Protection Program, which has been uh, in the news quite a lot recently. Um, and uh, there are some uh, updates uh, as well. Um, specifically, the Paycheck Protection Program is intended to provide immediate relief for organizations that are 
cash strapped because of the um, uh, the COVID nineteen crisis and and the fact that uh, you know basically everything has been shut down. So the um, just in terms of a little bit of context, though. The Paycheck Protection Program is eligible for, or small businesses and sole proprietors are eligible for this program. Um, small businesses are defined as entities with fewer than 500 employees or 500 and fewer employees. Um, although there are some exceptions to this due to the fact that um, certain uh, franchise chains uh, in the hotel and restaurant business were allowed to only count employees per location. Uh, that's why Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Hi, everybody. I am sorry about that. Uh, it looks like uh, Sharon was accidentally uh, removed from uh, the panel right now. Um, I believe that would be a connection issue. Um, so is there anybody else on the panel that would be able to answer some of the questions that we receive while we wait for Sharon to come back on? Melissa, perhaps uh, we should jump ahead and um, when Sharon gets back on, we can let her talk about PPP. Sure. Great. So what's the next section? Um, I can do the, um, I will fast forward to, and Sharon, just to, to, just to reiterate, she was um, launching into the Paycheck Protection Program Currently, that program um, for which $349 billion was um, allocated, currently all those funds have been spoken for and you probably have heard that there's um, movement afoot to extend that and expand that program. Um, but we are uh, anxiously waiting uh, word on that. Um, Hi, so I'm going to go back because I see Sharon joining us. Yeah, my apologies to everyone. My connection was unexpectedly lost. The joys of, of Zoom. Um, so let me just go back as I was starting to provide some context for the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, as I was saying, Small businesses defined as those with 500 employees or fewer and sole proprietors and independent contractors are eligible for this program. There's also a carve out for charitable nonprofits and veterans organizations and tribal governments. The amount that was set aside for this program initially was $349 billion. Um, to give you a sense of the scope of organizations that were eligible, however, there are 7.8 million businesses in the United States and only 20,000 have more than 500 employees. So businesses with um, fewer than 500 employees, this is according to 2017 numbers, account for 50% of the jobs in the United States. Businesses with fewer than 50 employees 25% of jobs, and 4.3 million businesses have fewer than four employees. Um, when you add that up with 1.4 million charities, you get over 9 million entities that are eligible for this particular program. Um, it is no surprise then that the uh, program was quickly oversubscribed. Um, and I should add faith-based organizations, 501c3, were also uh, uh, eligible for this program. Um, the program was, as I said, quickly oversubscribed. Applications were um, started to be accepted on the 3rd of April for uh, businesses and charities. Um, and on Thursday, April 16th, it was announced that they'd effectively run out of funds. That's less than a week than when the program um, opened up for individuals. 
However, we're still talking about it because there is uh, talk on Capitol Hill of increasing the funding for this program uh, to the tune of $310 billion more. It's unclear whether that will be sufficient to grant, make these loans to um, those who have already applied, or if in fact there will be uh, enough in that additional 310 billion to um, uh, fund new applicants. Um, some organizations, large organizations such as Shake Shack actually did receive a grant or a loan, I should say, under this program. Um, but uh, they, they actually returned the funds because uh, they uh, said that they had other sources of funding and certain larger organizations have come under fire in recent days because uh, they may have access to more other, you know, more, more options for funding than smaller entities that many feel that this program was intended to support. Um, so in terms of the, the basics, the loan is, or going back, so. Sorry. That's okay. Um, one thing about the application I should add is that um, while the application form is short, there is a lot of payroll documentation that's required. I know several clients of, of my firm have had to kind of do a whole lot of work to pull together the documentation that the bank asks for. Um, and uh, effectively, if you are a nonprofit organization, you may have to go to your board because some banks require organizational resolutions to affect the borrowing. So we can um, skip to the next one. So effectively, why, why is everyone liking this program so much? Well, first of all, it's a loan set at a 1% fixed interest rate. Um, and uh, payments of principal interest in any fees are deferred for six months. Um, the loan term is two years. There's no prepayment penalty. Unlike other small business administration loans, no personal guarantees or collateral are required. And the loan, as I'll get to in just a minute, the loan is forgivable. So you don't have to pay it off if you use it for the required types of expenditures within the first eight weeks of after having received the loan. So the loans can be made for up to two and a half months of the average monthly payroll costs from the last year. Um, there are a couple of different ways of calculating that, subject to a $10 million cap. Um, while no more than $100,000 of compensation per, per employee may be included in the calculation of an organization's payroll costs, this does not apply to non-cash benefits, including, and I put it in italics there because it wasn't clear at the outset that this was the case, um, but including employer contributions to divine benefit or divine contribution retirement plans, uh, payments for employee benefits consisting of group health care coverage, insurance premiums, and state and local taxes assessed on employee compensation. Um, but uh, independent contractors do not count as employees for purposes of calculating the maximum loan amount. So we can go on to the next slide. Um, and there's just a, a bit more here regarding maximum loan amount. Um, also a note that uh, you can use the Paycheck Protection Program to refinance an economic injury disaster loan. We'll be covering those a little later on in the slides um, because the PPP loan has a much lower rate than the EIDL loans. So going on to the next slide. So the permitted use, the requirement, and this isn't in the statute, but um, Treasury and the SBA determined that um, because this was effectively intended to keep people employed, they put um, restrictions on how the funds can be used. So at least 75% of the loan must be used for payroll. And no more than 25% of the loan may be used for certain permitted non-payroll costs, specifically mortgage interest, rent, utilities, and interest on loans incurred before February 15th, 2020, and also to refinance that qualifying EIDL loan. Um, 
this ensures that the funds will be used for payroll, but for a number of organizations, their total costs aren't oriented that way. Um, their rent may be 50% of their monthly costs and payroll may be only 50%. So for someone with that kind of expense ratio, you know, you, you would spend as much as you can during the eight week period following the making of the loan, but you wouldn't be able to spend necessarily all of it on permitted expenditures during that eight week period during which the kind of amount that is forgiven must be spent. So if we go to the next slide. So the thing again about these types of loans that makes them incredibly generous and the reason why I was saying grant earlier um, is because effectively it kind of converts to a grant um, so long as the borrower uses the funds over the eight week period following the receipt of the loan for no more than 25% of non-payroll costs and at least 75% for payroll costs. So if we go to the next, um, the EIDL loan that's refinanced as part of the loan um, is not eligible for forgiveness. Um, and in order to request forgiveness, you need to go back to your lender and, and provide substantiation regarding the use of the loan proceeds. For this reason, it is advisable, if, if possible, to set up a separate account into which the PPP loan is placed so that the expenditures out of that amount can be clearly tracked. Um, the lender has to make a decision on forgiveness within 60 days. There's nothing that I've seen in any of the guidance or the statute that permits the lender a certain amount of discretion, subjective discretion regarding loan forgiveness. Um, it appears that so long as the borrower is able to provide the required documentation to substantiate the permitted uses of the loan, um, the loan will be forgiven. Uh, and a lot of the guidance coming out of Treasury and SBA two weeks ago was saying apply now. Um, even though the program has been oversubscribed, like I said previously, uh, $310 billion may be reallocated to refund this uh, program. So uh, it is probably prudent if you haven't applied and you think it would be helpful and useful for your organization to apply for this, uh, the time is now. Um, and I believe over the past couple of weeks, the pool of banks that are willing to participate in this program has increased. Um, there is just one note here. Um, the CARES Act explicitly provides that these uh, that the SBA should issue guidance to lenders and agents to um, make sure that the loan processing prioritizes small businesses and entities in underserved and rural markets and, and organizations owned and run by um, members of the military uh, and minorities, women, and, and newer operations. Um, I have seen nothing to date in terms of guidance from Treasury or the SBA um, that would speak to this, but this may be why Shake Shack returned its loan. And we are taking a brief pause again with a view of Mount Washington in the distance from the top of Mount Jackson from last summer, because that was an awful lot of content to cover. I'm impressed, Sharon, that you could find a clear day of Mount Washington. I, I think my son and I hiked it on the really only clear day in July. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's also other tax relief in the CARES Act. Um, as noted before, employees, employers may pay employee student loans as a tax-free fringe benefit during 2020 up to that 5250 limit per employee. That's $5,250 per employee. There's also... Um, the deferral of payroll tax. So employers may defer the payment of the employer's share of the social security tax 
that they would otherwise be responsible for paying this year. Um, that amount must be repaid uh, basically in two parts, half of it uh, repaid by the end of 2021 and the other half repaid no later than December 31st, 2022. So this is effectively a no interest loan to the employer. Uh, and similar provisions apply to self-employed individuals. Uh, there's also a refundable tax credit. So um, now for this, unlike the PPP loan, um, organizations explicitly have to kind of assert or attest that they're, they're experiencing measurable harm because of the COVID-19 crisis. So uh, organizations that may want to take advantage of the refundable tax credit must be able to show that their operations were fully or partially suspended due to COVID-19, or they've seen a 50% decline in revenue as a result of the crisis. Um, so effectively, um, this uh, applies to qualified wages paid between March 13th, 2020 and December 31st, 2020. Uh, qualified wages are capped at the first $10,000 of compensation. Um, and for employers with an average of more than 100 employees in 2019, uh, qualified wages are wages paid to employees who are unable to work due to COVID-19 circumstances. So there's a bit of a limitation there. But for employers with an average of 100 or fewer employees in 2019, all wages are qualified. Um, the hook here is that if you want to take advantage of this refundable tax credit, um, which is basically equal to 50% of the qualified wages, so up to $5,000, um, you may not also participate in the Paycheck Protection Program. So it's one or the other. Okay, um, so we wanted to spend some time, thanks Sharon, on um, the other loan programs that are in the CARES Act um, uh, to make sure you know they're out there. Um, and also in, in the, um, you know, if in the unlikely event that we're done with PPP. Um, so the next one you may have heard about are called economic injury disaster loans. Um, and these are loans that you apply directly to the Small Business Administration for. Um, they are available to nonprofits of any size and also veterans organizations or tribal organizations. Um, and there are different terms for these loans, but one of the things that was provided in the CARES Act um, is an explicit $10,000 advance, $10, advance um, that you may receive whether or not the loan is um, approved. And you'll see that there's a, a similar theme to the um, permissible purposes for which the um, loan proceeds may be used. Um, and just a quick note on the $10,000 um, to extent um, uh, that, that there's an interrelation with the forgiveness on the $10,000 and there, there's basically, it's an attempt to prevent double dipping. Um, here are those terms I've been speaking of. Maximum amount 2 million, 2.75% um, interest rate for nonprofits, up to 30 year term. Um, so so uh, not anything close to the Paycheck Protection Program, but wanna make sure people know that it's out there. Um, Let's see, uh, one note, there's a lot of, you know, confusion around the, the, the rollout of these programs, but I do wanna just highlight um, a prospective borrower may not have applications pending concurrently for an EIDL loan and a PPP loan. So um, just take note of that. 
no cost to apply, no obligation to take the loan. Um, so there's some, some additional favorable terms there that you may want to um, look into. Before we move on to the next section, I do just want to highlight also the, the uh, other loan programs in the CARES Act, the Main Street Lending Program and the um, Mid-Sized Business Program. Um, in, in, um, in the wake of all the confusion and bumpy rollout of the Paycheck Protection Program, they are taking a little bit more time on this one and if, in effect have had a comment period which closed on Friday. Um, and so be on the lookout for more news on those loan programs as well. Um, Brad? Great, so I'm gonna take us through um, some of the provisions specific to higher ed and to healthcare. Um, before I do that, I think this might be a good time to, because uh, we've been moving at a blistering pace because there's so much to cover. And we've had a few questions that have aggregated. So before we move past too many of these areas, I thought it might be worth um, uh, throwing out a couple of these questions. One of them, uh, asked uh, whether there were any CARES Act provisions for any other tax-exempt entities other than 501c3 and 501c19. I think that popped up while we were talking about the PPP loans, which were limited to those, and it ties neatly into Melissa's summary of the EIDL loans. Do you want to address that one, Melissa? Uh, sure. So um, the SBA, it kind of goes back to the history of the Paycheck Protection Program, right? Um, typically nonprofits are not able to apply for those provisions. Um, what I saw the most coming out of was C6s and C7s not being able to take advantage of those loans. Um, so I know that there are significant lobbying efforts um, currently in place to expand the eligibility. So I, I, would, um, I would say stay tuned to see if, if there's an expansion. Yeah, and I think, I think the other point to make, is, as Melissa said, the, the EIDLs are open to um, any nonprofit of, of any size. Uh, unlike the PPP loans, which are limited to C3s, I don't think the EIDLs are. So if you're a non-C3, you might be able to take advantage of that. Also, um, a question that came in via email asked if a foreign charitable organization operating in the United States through a disregarded entity formed in Delaware would be eligible for a PPP loan? It's an interesting question, not one that I've been asked before, but in the statute, nonprofit organization is, is defined as an organization that is described in section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 and that is exempt from taxation under section 501a of such code. So, and I'd be interested in Melissa's and Brad's thoughts on this on the fly. Um, if a foreign organization has a determination letter from the IRS, uh, uh, you know, saying that it's described in Section 501c3, it technically may be eligible for this loan, but the foreign organization would have to have sufficient payroll and other costs, I, I think based on US operations in order to in order to take advantage of it. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean I would start I my just my gut reaction is I would I would be um, I would start from a default of thinking that there would be some stumbling blocks for eligibility there. Um, but um, you know, because you've got the, the, the single member LLC and the for, foreign. So, but I, I'm not sufficiently deep in that to say no for sure. Yeah. I don't think the, the LLC could apply for it, but I'm thinking just broader, a foreign organization with U.S. Yeah. operations. With, with a lot of U.S.-based operations. I, I, I tend to agree. I think that you're going to have a, a hard road to, to get to a yes on that. Um, I think it'd be limited to those who have a, a, a 501c3 determination letter. There yeah. might be some categories of organizations that don't have that, you know, foreign um, religious organizations maybe that, that might sort of be captured. But generally speaking, if you're a foreign organization, you need that. Uh, I think the way the statute reads to, to, to be captured here. 
um, and you'd really need a strong case that it's, you know, it, it's, it's U.S.-based uh, yeah. employment activities that you're supporting. Otherwise, I think the intent of the statute is, is not going to help you. Right. Yeah. And just just Brad raises a good point. Um, you know, think about this for, from the perspective of the lenders. They are having to make decisions, yeah. you know, uh, you know, on a minute or, you know, at least hour by hour basis. Um, and so you need to think about that that side of the thing as well. At least um, the SBA was very explicit in their guidance on faith-based organizations that they acknowledge that a religious organization may not have a determination letter and um, stating that that does not preclude eligibility. Um, I've seen nothing on the foreign side. Yeah. 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 Um, so one other question I'll, I'll briefly respond to, and it's an excellent question. Um, do you anticipate that many high bracket taxpayers will take full advantage of the elective suspension of the 170 percentage limitations? Uh, it would appear that the present value of a carryover at highest marginal rates will more than offset immediate uh, deduction burning through low bracket amounts. And there have been some uh, PG Calc had had a, a little piece on this, and some others have, have talked about this. Um, that you know, if you're making a choice between uh, taking the full 100% now and taking your 50 or 60% now and rolling the rest over to next year, it's not automatically the case, and may not even uh, often be the case that that you're better off taking it now than taking it later. I think you're certainly you know better off if you are taking 100% now and taking 50% next year. And I think that's the incremental you know, benefit to the incentive if you're choosing between the two. If you don't already have those rollovers, as a lot of high net worth donors do, they've already maximized their 50 or 60% and they're looking for what more they can do incrementally. Um, if you're not in that position, then you absolutely need to you know, make your contributions that you wanna make and then you've got time until your tax return for next year. To, to figure out whether you're better off making that election or not making that election based on all your personal facts and circumstances. All right, let's, um, uh, we encourage others to have questions to, and that's all the ones that we have, but if others have them, please feel free to submit them. Um, however, we're gonna move on uh, and I'm gonna move through quite quickly through these uh, slides on um, the higher ed specific and in particular the healthcare specific uh, provisions, uh, given that we're short on time. Um, a, a big feature of the CARES Act was the education stabilization provisions. This provides funding for uh, educational institutions um, to adapt to uh, COVID-19. Uh, a significant subset of that, I believe it was 14 billion, um, ish, uh, it comes in the form of higher education emergency relief funds uh, with a rather unfortunate acronym of HIRF. Um, uh, the, these are funds that are allocated by the Department of Education and the Department of Education has already determined how much every higher ed institution is going to get. So higher ed institutions should already know what amount they're at least eligible for. There's a certification that um, the Department of Education provided last week uh, that everybody has to fill out um, uh, and submit. Uh, in particular, at least half of those funds have to be used to provide emergency financial aid grants to students for maintenance and education related expenses, things that would be part of the, the cost of living that resulted from this disruption of campus operations, uh, food, housing, course materials, technology, healthcare, childcare, that sort of thing. Um, these have to be in the form of direct grants to students, uh, not reimbursement for costs that the institution has incurred or for refunds or benefits that the institution's already provided to students. So if an educational organization has already on its own initiative without waiting for these funds provided these kinds of benefits, they can't now go back and um, uh, reimburse themselves for that out of these funds. These are intended to the uh, new funds given out to, to students uh, for these purposes. Um, schools are encouraged by the guidance around this to be mindful of the needs of the, uh, of, of need uh, with respect to students who are lower income and who have greater needs. Uh, however, as a practical matter, 
um, uh, the law and the education department realized that it's not going to be practical to make people apply for these things to use a need-based filter. And so while there is some soft encouragement to think about that, maybe use it for certain kinds of students and have a formula as to how you're going to allocate it, there's no requirement. And I know some higher ed institutions as a practical matter are considering um, uh, just giving it out according to a particular format to students. Uh, either without reference to need or with some sort of automatic references based on the, the, the need-focused information they already have based on the, the um, uh, financial aid uh, from, from that year. Um, funds have to be distributed within a year and there are reporting requirements uh, 30 days after getting the fund and every 45 days thereafter regarding how much you're giving the student, how you've calculated that, and any instructions you're giving the students in particular um, you know, telling them not to use this to buy video games, but use it for these specific purposes. Um, with regard to the other 50% that the institutions are eligible for, um, it's much more flexible how the institution is going to use those. It needs to be to cover costs related to the changes arising from COVID-19, of course, and there are specific carve-outs to make sure that nobody uses this to buy, to build a new football stadium, as if that needed to be said. Um, uh, one particular interesting certification that higher ed institutions are required to make is that they will, to the greatest extent practicable, continue to pay their employees and contractors during the period of any disruptions or closures related to COVID-19. And I know a number of higher ed institutions are wrestling with what that means in practice, to the greatest extent practicable. Um, you know, most of these institutions are going to have to, at the very least, do some furloughing of employees and probably some prioritizing and perhaps some, some layoffs as a practical matter. Um, so at what point, you know, have you crossed a line into doing something that is not to the greatest extent practicable? The advice that I've been giving is that, you know, the, 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 this is intentionally uh, flexible. Uh, there are other places in the CARES Act where uh, nonprofits are required to maintain or to come back to a certain specific level of employment. This is not one of those. This recognizes that these kinds of things may need to happen as a practical matter. And so I think the key is to be mindful of this certification uh, if you're receiving these loans and to be able to defend the why what you decided to do um, was the best you could do uh, under the circumstances and that it would not have been more practicable to continue certain kinds of employment or to not furlough employees. Um, but if others have views on that, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing it. I think we're still waiting for guidance on, on a lot of this. Um, moving on from the HERE funds, uh, there's another subset of uh, funds, $3 billion, that have been allocated to the states, uh, for the states to decide how to use those funds. Massachusetts's allocation has been set, that's a little over $50 million. Um, Governor Baker has to apply by June 1st um, for those. Uh, those funds can be used for a broader range of things than the HEAR funds. Specifically, they don't have to be used for higher education, they can be used for you know, K-12 and other things. Um, uh, for one of the things in slide 37, emergency support for local educational agencies uh, could be used for support for higher ed institutions serving students most significantly impacted in the governor's determination um, or for other education uh, related entities that the governor believes are, are essential. And I think we're still waiting for um, uh, guidance from the governors to, as to how those funds are going to be used and, and and who may and how to apply for those. Um, let's talk about the healthcare provisions, and I'm really going to zip through these since we've, we're at the hour, um, and we've got a few extra minutes for, um, for or want to leave a few minutes for, for Q&A. Um, so very, very briefly, uh, the CARES Act has some specific provisions providing additional funding to support the healthcare industry, $100 billion uh, for a broad array, array of things for healthcare providers. Um, to address coronavirus, uh, $1.3 billion of desperately needed money for community health centers who were already having a lot of issues before this came up. Uh, strategic National Stockpile gets some additional money on slide 39. Um, I won't go through all of this, but um, uh, supplemental assistance to, to other kinds of, of health centers. 
um, uh, focus on vaccines, uh, some extra money for, for vaccine development. And then there's a lot, there are a lot of provisions focused on telehealth, um, in particular in, in rural areas and providing incentives for that, providing um, uh, exceptions for certain kinds of restrictions for telehealth related services, clearly trying to incentivize uh, and, and encourage people to, to take advantage of that. Um, a couple of other things, moving all the way on to slide 42, um, uh, some uh, industry specific relief for education student loan payments are deferred until September 30th uh, without penalty, which would be a great relief to a lot of folks um, who built up student loans. Universities can continue to pay the work study students even though they can't, uh, many of them are not able to keep working. And if there are unused uh, work study funds, those can be used for supplemental grants um, for COVID-19 relief. So that, and there are a number of places where um, uh, educational institutions are given greater flexibility with those kinds of, of federal funds to deploy them where they need to, uh, to address COVID-19. Um, moving on to slide 43, uh, uh, those who were, um, had years of, of teaching service are able to count the partial year as a full year and there are other uh, waivers of requirements. Um, so let's move on to some federal filing extensions. Thanks, Brad. I, I decided to, we decided to end with the most exciting stuff. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, to the extent you've been following it, there have been a, um, a drip, there's been a drip, 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 drip of uh, extensions on federal um, obligations to file and pay taxes due. And so I've outlined the history there for you in a condensed version. Um, but what I want to focus on is notice 2020-23, which came out um, this month, earlier this month, that for um, returns due uh, in this period, April to July, um, they are extended to July 15th. Um, that's the Form 990 series, 990, 990EZ, 990N, the 990T, which is the UBTI um, form, private foundations forms, and note that it includes the excise taxes that are owed with the filing of a private foundation return. Um, and then also the quarterly UBTI payments. Um, I wanna highlight one thing, the due date for getting a donor acknowledgement for um, contributions over $250 um, is tied to the, the earlier of the filing of the return, the 1040 or the, um, or the, the due date including extensions. So I just wanna flag to the extent, you know, that that is, um, relevant, um, note that you don't have all the way to the extended date to obtain a donor acknowledgement if you're going to file before that extended date. So that was just the point I wanted to make there. Um, and then finally, we want to just close um, um, and, um, you know, Massachusetts has been doing its best both on filing obligations and other areas to keep pace with and address the issues that, um, are coming up as a result of the stay at home order and the pandemic itself. Um, and one thing that we want to make note of for you, um, for those of you who are chapter 180 corporations is the um, expanded relief for a very truncated period um, to allow member meetings to be conducted remotely, which under um, before the passage of this legislation was not allowed and then to provide some expanded rules for allowing proxy voting by members of nonprofit corporations, as long as it's not prohibited in the articles of organization. You'll see a theme here, both with respect to members and directors of taking reasonable measures as much as practicable to make sure that those, uh, that uh, steps are taken to inform people and to, um, make sure that people can be heard and communicate. Um, and then also with respect to, with respect to directors, you can see um, a need to uh, allow directors to have some flexibility to cancel meetings or allow terms to continue or in fact appoint successors. Um, so 
some relief there, but note that it expires 60 days after the cessation of the disaster declaration. Uh, so with that, I'm gonna turn it back to Brad and Sharon in case we have any other additional questions. So Melissa, one uh, just thing I wanted to note on the fi federal filing extensions, only because I happen to have gotten this question a couple of times, um, uh, for those who are representing private foundations, private foundations, of course, have a minimum distribution requirement of 5% um, uh, of their asset value basically every year. Um, while the Form 990PF filing requirements and the Form 4720, if you have excise tax requirements, have been deferred, the requirement to distribute your 5% is not. Uh, so that still has to happen on time. Um, I know there are some private foundations who um, would like some deferral of that because, you know, they, they don't quite know how they want their money to go. Um, but you got to get that, that money out um, uh, to one place or another. And, you know, now's a really good time to perhaps distribute more than your 5% uh, uh, if you weren't otherwise doing that. Yeah, great point. And that is that, that the, the deadline... Um, is the end of the tax year, not the filing. Right. So we and had um, a couple of questions. Um, uh, one of those asked whether there's any prohibition on applying to the PPP program and the EIDL program, or the EIDL program at the same time, or is the only consequence that the PPP assistance might be reduced by the amount of the Idle assistance. I think I know the answer to that, but I'll let um, Sharon and Melissa, since they talked about that, respond. Well, um, this is Sharon. Um, the rules, as I understand them, require that the EIDL received through that an EIDL received through April third must be refinanced with. Uh, if you're applying for the PPP, you have to refinance the EIDL with it. Um, but borrowers who took out an EIDL for purposes other than payroll costs between January 31st and the date that the PPP loans are first made available are still, are still eligible for a PPP loan because the EIDL loan may be used for a broader universe of purposes than the PPP loan. So there is some, I think, flexibility there but you can't apply for both and use them for the same types of costs. Melissa, do you have insights on that one? Or? Yeah, no, I, I agree with what you said, Sharon. Great. Uh, the only other questions we've received uh, ask whether our materials will be distributed and available. Um, uh, so I'll ask our, our BBA representative if this is going to be sent around or can be sent around to the invite list. If not, people can certainly reach out to any of us and we can send them.